Sounding Board Podcast with Hachi and Damo. Thanks to Drinkwise. If you're choosing to have a drink, choose to Drinkwise. Good to have your company on the Sounding Board for Drinkwise. If you're choosing to have a drink, choose to Drinkwise. This is Series 6 of Episode 14 of this particular podcast. And I am sitting here in the South Bank Studios and Craig Hutchison is overseas, specifically, I believe, in the bubble that is New Zealand. Hachi. Hello, Damo. Yes, I'm in Auckland as we speak. Uh, we're recording this Monday night of this week, would you believe? So no footy classified for me on this particular week, but uh, I am in Auckland for the whole week in Wellington as part of our uh, move to roll out SENZ here in New Zealand, which we will do in the coming week. So there's a lot to do, not a lot of time to do it, and it's been quite an emotional 24 or 48 hours in the lead up to here, Damo. So we start probably on a bit more of a sombre note tonight before we move on to the show. Yeah, we do. And and you're referring to, to two famous uh, football people um, in, in Sam Newman and Frank Costa having uh, had... had Devastation um, around them in the past 24, 48 hours. Frank Costa himself, 83 years of age, dying over the weekend. A, a man as synonymous as anyone with the success of the Geelong Footy Club in the 12 years he had there as as president. And Sam Newman, the, the death of his wife, Amanda Hutchie. They're people that, that you were very close to and a lot of football people are, are very close to and, and a lot of football people are suffering um, as a result and and, uh, and 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 I suppose affording their, their care for the people uh, who are going through what, what they are going through at the moment. Yeah, so our thoughts go out to uh, Sam and everyone involved with the tragic passing of Amanda and then the Costa family and the... I guess the unbelievable sadness of the departure of, uh, of Frank, um, albeit a, uh, I guess, a celebration of his life that will be ahead because of what, just how many people he touched and the unbelievable life that he lived. But yeah, very, very sad time and a tragic time for for Sam with the, the passing of Amanda. Uh, everyone will have their own story and experience. I know you do too as well, Damo. My, yeah, I was just absolutely... Um, gobsmacked yesterday to get the news in the morning around the the, the death of Amanda uh, their, her sense of spirit and sense of zest for life and love of Sam we saw so many times didn't we mm. she was always in and around his world uh, whether it be their wonderful time boating together and her a big smile and ability to disarm him with a joke or yeah. a, a, you know a, to say the to say the cheeky thing at the exact right time to get a rise yeah. from him they had a uh, unique relationship they, they knew which buttons to press in each other yeah. didn't they and it was it was uh, it was interesting watching them it was, it was character study uh, wasn't it at um, at, at, at 101 style wasn't it in terms of how they used to uh, just say and do things that they knew would get a reaction uh, her, her, what I remember and it's it's hard to even be in reflective mode right now this this soon was her just sense of love and support and just forever having his back and yeah it was I, so I can't get my head around it and the the the, the Sam we know is as loving and caring and generous soul as you'll find mm. uh, he's someone that's hard to get to know and impossible to unknow once you know him he's very loyal and uh, I know how intrinsically linked and loved they were for each other. So I, I really feel for him. Um, I can't imagine what he's going through. I know 
you'd be the same. And, uh, and there's people that in that nine system that know him much better than you and I do. But you know, our heart goes out to him. It's it's the most horrible of situations. And um, you know, we're thinking of him. And then with the Costas, like, what an incredible life he lived. There's nothing we could say that could add further colour to the extraordinary story. The sense of like, his heart was as big as anyone you'll meet. He would do anything for anyone. Mm. Uh, how he was so family centric in a business that size, and the time he had for everybody. We have a close a, a close connection via his son-in-law Tim Cleary, who's been an enormous impact on me and you and us. And uh, we got to a little bit more of Frank than most. Everyone's got a personal story about Frank. I, I remember when our business was in a real spot five, six years in. We're at a point where I, I just didn't know how we'd get to the next level or get through or fund it. He, it was it was Frank who was on the phone. Uh, he's I reckon I can help you here and I'm going to give you my right hand man he's going to just take a personal look and help you to develop some themes on how to structure through this and he would go out of his way I'm sure there'd be millions of people who he who he helped and uh, would never have, no one would ever have known his mm. sense of philanthropy but uh, philanthropy I should say but you know his personal help of me and us and he, it was always you could always bounce something off him he'd take your call uh, as a president, he was overtly generous. So if, uh, with Brian Cook would joke he was too generous with the media. Yeah. But it, 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 in a funny way, and you look at the media side of Frank, he he didn't believe in saying a version of the truth to a journalist. He just believed in taking a phone call and being honest. And he, you'd hear him in that voice say, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah, you have to check that with Cookie, but my view is this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And when you say that voice, you're referring to, to those who, who may not be familiar with it as, as some, the, the gravelly voice. It's the only way to describe it, wasn't it? It was just gravelly from, from the first time he came into the public uh, sphere. And he never changed who he was. I mean, he he, uh, he didn't care how he presented. Actually, the one thing about him, he, he never wanted a claim for any of the achievements that his club under his watch achieved. No, he didn't. He was humble. And he he just took a real interest in people. Uh, I've been reading a lot about him today, actually, and that theme's everywhere, isn't it, about how he supported his people, and we could all learn from that. Yep. A, an amazing supporter of people, trusting, uh, loyal, had a big sense of the greater good, man of principle, wouldn't budge his principles no matter what, uh, honest, and also, you know, one of that era of uh, businessmen that had... But, you know, I, I think of when I think of Frank, I think of Ian Dicker, who was his great mate. I think of Ron Evans. I think of that era of just pure integrity in business, mm. high achievers, massive success stories, but they did it in a way that had real virtue. Yeah, you know, and and that would be my. And observation of, of, of Frank. Another observation on him too, Hutchie, is his ability to, to, to know when to, to get out as well. I mean, it's, it's almost as crucial as knowing when to start and, and, and getting on a roll with the success that you've always dreamed about when you take on such positions as, as chairman of a, a footy club. But when his 12 years was up, he, he just took off um, and he left the place in, uh, in, in amazing shape and, and handed it over to another person who's similar to what you just described when it comes to integrity in Colin Carter and that was a beautifully planned exit for him and an entry by, by Colin Carter who, who continued what Frank had set up. And his wife Shelley and the kids, just wonderful people and Shelley he loved and and she loved him and I, for whatever reason, this is an uneventful story but I remember being in Hamilton Island on my own for an event and I hear this uh, I'm, I'm walking along the base level and I hear this uh, voice from a, a floor up 
is that you, Hutchie? And I, uh, straight away, there's only one Frank Costa voice. <laughs> you know the voice. You can't have to see the human being. And then uh, you get an, you know you're about to get a sneaky half an hour or an hour with him. And it, time with him was rare, but it was wonderful. Um, I didn't know him anywhere near as well as most, but I always loved him. And, uh, yeah, we're thinking of the Costa family. So our thoughts are with everyone, Damo, as we start on a pretty pretty uh, sombre note today. Yeah, it is. It is. And uh, that, that will be felt uh, far beyond uh, the, um, the the two days of, of this week since we've uh, got, got our heads around what it, what it was that happened on the weekend to, to both those people. Hutchie, we've had a lot of feedback in the in the past seven days since we last spoke on this uh, program about the thawing of you, the, the the Brian Taylor style of, of thawing, the warming of Brian Taylor that, that we've talked about for three years on Channel 7. Now, it's happening to you. And this is on the back of you appearing on your Croc Media S slash SEN podcast, Don't Shoot the Messenger, along with the, the beautiful Claire, your, your partner. And you were prepared to talk about yourself in a way that I can't ever get you to speak about publicly. It, it's clearly a plan. And our listeners are in on this, Hutchie. It's clearly a plan of your doing and of your making to be much more presentable to the public. And, and our listeners are loving it. It's not true, Damo. It was a joke last week about the thawing. But uh, you can't – you said we can, is this part of the warming. You can't warm someone that hasn't got a, a base level of heat to start with. So um, it's a thawing, Damo. But, no, we we, we uh, described it, Hutchie, as that, as that forgotten chicken fillet up the back of the freezer, up in the far back corner that's been there for way too long. You're out of that freezer now, Hachi. You're starting to defrost, and and this is the start of something new for you. <laughs> Did you actually? You wouldn't have even heard it, did you? No, I hate to say I didn't. <laughs> I, you wouldn't believe it. I've I've obviously subscribed to it. I had that done it a long time ago. I've got the episode ready to go. I just haven't hit play on it. <laughs> yeah. So so your joke would have stood up if you had something to back it up. But since you haven't heard any of it, you've really got nothing to bring to the table. I've got no and, time to listen to stuff anymore, Hachi. And that wasn't the big news in podcast during the week. So talk to me about this. I thought we had a commercial deal where I had podcast exclusivity to your IP. <laughs> Did you? I thought, you know, you've got your little Saturday rub where you play the play the fool and that's you know, it serves you well and you love those boys and you know, all that rest of it. The Friday and, huddle. You know, James is rarely there, but you're you're over there doing your thing. Um but I thought that I we owned podcast exclusivity in our IP deal. It only turned out last week that not only do we not, but you've gone and done a new podcast with the AFL, which is really eating into my area, to be candid, <laughs> called AFL Daily. Well, Hutchie, if you want to go way back, you didn't even want to enter the world of podcasting until I told you we probably should jump into it all uh, six seasons ago before we started this uh, particular... Personally, you're right, I didn't, and I, and I still uh, second-guess it every every second week, but you've got AFL Daily going. With Nat Edwards. How we, often uh, does that come out, Domo? It's funny, Hutchie, but when it's called daily, it's an attempt to come out every <laughs> single day, at least during the week. Does it? Week. Does it come out every day? Yeah, it does. And not on Saturdays, not on Sundays at this stage. Are you Are you there every day? Yeah, I am. Um, we, are, we are recording really, really early. It's um, The alarm's going off at uh, probably at the time it goes off for you most days, Hutchie, these days. I, I'm, as you know, I'm an early riser anyway. I get up at six as a rule, but getting up a little bit before five these days to get ready for uh, this particular podcast. And really enjoying it and, and going very nicely too. I'm glad you've raised it. Thank you. 
And uh, so, how are the numbers early days? I haven't Good seen numbers. any of the Good numbers. I haven't seen any of the ratings. I haven't seen much social presence. So, are you going to market this at some stage and let people know it's there? Or what's, no, the, what's the plan? Well, we, we might need to get you on to to, uh, to unlock the the trickery that can sometimes happen with numbers that are attached to certain products. Maybe this one included. I see the sounding board for all I know, but we we just haven't. I don't think have got the skill set that you've got, whereby numbers can just appear miraculously around anything. So, you might want to. Can we can we tap into that side of you? A lot of people off the feedback are suggesting you've been segment stealing already and structurally <laughs> stealing from the IP of the sounding board. So what, what I'm going to do, our, what have I done? our media lawyers are going to run the tape. We're a proud supplier of AFL.com. We love the relationship, but nevertheless, no one's immune. We're going to run the tape. What is it they? Is, what are they? What is it that our listeners, Hushy, are suggesting I've done by way of stealing? If, if I see any themes that even remotely broach into the in-gags on the sounding board or some of the... Subjects. If I see a, a Winks or a Nick McKenzie here, or I see a, you know, something over there, or if I see any news limited criticism, uh, I will be taking, I will be exercising full full rights on this. So I'll be looking out for it. Nat Edwards, by the way, very talented. So it's great to hear that she's at the helm of the podcast. It can't clearly work on the back of you alone. No. Um, so uh, no, she's, she's outstanding, aren't she? And it's 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 really it, look for those who haven't caught up with it. AFL Daily. It will become, over the journey, Hutchie, a must for any AFL person to start um, his or her day with. And then just to probably to give you credit where it's due, so I, I set the over and under last week on the on the sanction. Ah, uh, you did too, yes. On the outcome of the Jason McCartney incident, which was a bit cheeky of me because I am intent on being everyone's friend as part of the thawing, so I'm trying to yeah. leave all rivalries in the past. And, and be, just set this up again for those who may have missed last week's episode. Well, you got, you got personal, which I didn't like, you know, and I told you so. Well, it, I only got, got personal because my my story was being shot down by a certain person. Yeah, but that's professional. It's not personal. So It's John personal was, when it was being shot down for yeah, the reasons that relate to personality. The with you and I. You take things personally when they are a professional act. I take things professionally Do you? when it is a professional nature. John Ralph said last week that your story had been overblown. You took it personally. You shouldn't do that. It's a professional uh, voice that John had. I set the over and under. I said, the only way we're going to sort this out is on the basis of the outcome. <laughs> right. So I set the over and under. Um, I can't remember what I set the over and under at, but I said a suspended fine, I think maybe it was the over and under. Jason McCartney was fined $20,000. That puts it in the James Heard, Scott McLaren sort of level fine. So unfortunately for old mate Ralphie, that's... That's uh, put it this way: if you're index betting, you would have gone broke on that one. That's uh, that's a compelling win to you in hindsight. So credit where it's due. I can be hard on you. It's well, <laughs> a clear win to you and a clear loss to John. Well, Hutchie, I had an impeccable source on that story. Oh, I read this. <laughs> no, did you see that? <laughs> I did actually. Set I was, this up for me. I was I hoping you were of... going to pick up what I just said there. I, I say I had an impeccable source, tongue in cheek, because I actually read that in print during the week. Someone had an impeccable source in print. So this was this was a we read at the time, and b of quite a few people have fed this to us. Yeah, they have actually uh, as well. On the back page of the Herald Sun, the third paragraph on the uh, the horse situation, Anthony Van Dyke from memory. According to an impeccable source close to Racing Victoria's review, was the <laughs> language used on the back of the Herald Sun. Now. How have you ever seen impeccable source used in 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 print before? No, no. I don't reckon I have. No. Like, 
What's the alternative to an impeccable source? According to a... A, 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 not, a not so reliable source. <laughs> According to a hit and miss source. <laughs> According to someone we bumped into in the street, is an impeccable source. Now when you read the word source, do you say, oh, hang on. They haven't got it as impeccable here. <laughs> the rung below. Does it automatically cast down on every other story now because they've gone to the impeccable source I've, level? I've seen and, and read a lot of things actually over the journey in uh, in media. I've never seen that phrase written as in as in stated within the article in question. But you know According what it is, to an impeccable source, it's poor sub editing is what it is because that's that's office speak that shouldn't make its way into print. And journalists speak that way. They'll yep. say, have you got this from a good source? Impeccable. Impeccable. That's right. Um, I, I don't think I've ever been really a source for a news story, but if I become one at some stage in my retirement, my aim is to become impeccable. Right. How do you bec- how do you get to impeccable status? <laughs> you, you got to, do you got to bat at 100%? Yep. Or 90, no, no, 95 uh, impeccable? When it comes to sources, actually, it has to be 100. 100? <laughs> Well, but because you, you know what the impeccable ones are are the ones that do bat at a hundred, and then every, the, they actually can become problems over the journey, as you know, because someone might be batting at a hundred for two or three tip-offs. Okay, so then you think, okay, this person, this person is impeccable, but then you come across a bit of information from that person that's not right, and then you wonder forevermore, is this person impeccable? I hadn't seen the standard of source set at Impeccable before in print, but does really cast doubt on those sources that are not no longer considered Impeccable. And so I think it's going to have to become the new norm. If you're not an Impeccable source, you're like, oh, there's a story in the paper today, but it didn't have the Impeccable in it. Just look, have a look at the dictionary. Impeccable. In accordance with the highest standards, yep. faultless. He had impeccable manners. Yep. Free from fault or blame, flawless spoke impeccable. So it's a one-strike policy. If that story ends up being untrue, that yep. source should be let go. <laughs> yep. I'm sorry, man. I can't talk to you anymore because you were impeccable to this point. I put it in print. And you've gone and done yourself a mischief by getting this one wrong, so you're no longer a source. What about the conversations you have with with your sources, Hutchie, at times, and sometimes people who aren't sources but but may may want to be on a certain topic? Do you, you would have noticed this when you were still doing the the beat, so to speak, where someone would ring up and say, "I've just heard from," and they'd insert the the name here, or or, or they'd refer to the a, a person who was 100 percent right on that other story that I told you about. So therefore, the credentials yeah. of this person are becoming impeccable because of the track record of said person. Yeah, well, when you think about it, it doesn't make any sense. Just because someone was right about on one the other story one. Yeah. makes them no right or wrong, more right or wrong on the next. It's like that that toss of the next coin, isn't it? Just because it's come up tails 11 times in a row doesn't mean it's uh, not going to come up a 12th time, does it, Hutchie? Journalists put incredible kudos and almost reward in someone. If someone gave a journalist a story and ended up very well, they, they, they dine out on it. For years, and they leveraged against you. Remember that time I gave you that yarn back in 2015? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the yeah. other thing that happens is the dynamic changes. So, yeah. the, the source starts to become offended when. Yes, uh, if you don't run something. If you don't run something. Yeah. Actually, that, that's, that's, that's a good t- point on sources. Yeah. yeah. You sources can lose sources in- by not hitting go on a story, can't you? Well, they, be- they become empowered. They're the ones showing their friends, going, look at this. I told old mate this. Yeah. I told a yeah. mate this, and now it's on the back, and I'll get him to write this tomorrow. Wait a minute, where is that story? <laughs> the other one to look for in the source relationship, uh, before we move off this frivol conversation. Um, frivol? Excuse me, pointless conversation. Frivolous or trivial? Frivolous. One of the two. Yeah, yeah. You sound like Billy Brown is combining I, I, I a couple do. of words together all in one. Been a long day of an overnight flight, my apologies. Frivol. I like um, it. What about... 
when the journalist takes offence or gets defensive yeah. when the source says, now this is off the record or this didn't come from me, <laughs> the journalist goes, of course, you know, how long have you known me for? You know, gets all defensive. Yeah, I sometimes still do that. <laughs> you, you're always shocked you get it. I've yeah. seen it. Yeah, well, what do you, who do you think I am? I've never once told anyone I speak yeah, to you. But you start so, so stuff. I've never once said anything to anyone. That's all rubbish. Of course you have. It's just it, no journalist is perfect on that front. If you're a source out there, yeah. button down the journalist. Do not let them uh, talk you out of it. You set the rules and you do it clearly. <laughs> As the source, you set the rules there, again. Source sets the game. That's how it works. What about when you've got to ring that person back, Archie, after you know, maybe working on something for a couple of weeks, months even at times, and, and you just can't get it to the line, even though you may know it to be true. But you've got to have that conversation with that person who's been good enough to give you the information, and, and it's a very deflating experience all around, isn't it? Well, you've got to, you've got to come clean and say, this I, I can't get this up. Is not happening, and then they get offended. And they get they offended, go, and then then sometimes Hutchie, if if they're certain, if they're wide a certain way, they may take said information to someone else. They always do. Yeah, they always do, don't they? Oh, mostly, most of the time. And sometimes you actually read someone else fall into it and write it. Yep. And you go, oh, I know exactly where that came from. Did that same guy try to tell me that story? <laughs> Even I, though it's not necessarily right, I know I'm it's not sure from. that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yes, yeah, it's all the, all the ridiculous stuff that I remember from the journalistic days way back when. Oh, yes, exactly. Hey, Hachi, I, I saw something during the week which intrigued me, and I want to get your take on this as a as the, as the as the businessman in this conversation. New Zealand rugby. And, and there's a bit uh, to play it with this story. So- I've got an impeccable source on this. Have you really? Good. Because <laughs> you're in New Zealand. You might have got to the bottom of this. New Zealand rugby, Hachi, has basically um, restructured itself to, to the, the point where it is taking to the marketplace the rights, for, and, and it's a US company in question, to buy into the marketability and the commercial side of the famous All Blacks. Yeah, it's a... It's a three-quarter of a billion-dollar transaction, this, isn't it? It's on the public record. Yeah. Again, again, we don't need to worry about where it's at in terms of the the deal itself getting done, but the fact that New Zealand rugby, for financial reasons, which it's put its hand up and and admitted to after coming out of of COVID not as uh, healthy as as they once were, um, and also, you know, I suppose safeguard for for future problems, is trying to sell off and, and make money from an outside company, a non-New Zealand company, on the, the most famous, arguably, sporting icon, if not in the world, but you could certainly argue Southern Hemisphere. Yeah, we're seeing a trend globally, aren't we? Like on private equity in particular, uh, or institutional investment into sporting leagues and teams. And it's the market worth of these leagues and teams defies basic business sort of multiple logic. Uh, based upon a variety of often strategic reasons and or uh, kind of almost a second economy. Um, but does this take away, does it erode some of the the beauty of what was the, the, the All Black story? No, because it's a, it's a minor stake in the business. It's a, you know, it's not a, a, a controlling interest. It is a strategic financial investment that the money will be re-spent, I'm sure, on growing the overall sport and code. Uh, to better serve its future. So you can argue that this could happen. It's not beyond the realms. This happens in areas like AFL footy and uh, you know, sports all around the world. Like Private ownership and or you know, equity investment, private equity investment or institutional money is 
is going to be rife in sport in the next 10, 15, 20 years. But, but great... Hachi, isn't, isn't a lot of what we've been told and, and, and said to believe about the All Blacks, isn't that based upon that it's not up for sale and that, that it is an, an organic development of, of an amazing sporting team into an amazing set of people who represent that team within the structure of New Zealand sport? That doesn't change. It does change if you're selling if you're selling it off to to let's face it the highest bidder. Of course, it changes it. It's commercialized. The moment you commercialize something, of course, it changes it. But, yeah, but it's only it's a it's a twelve and a half percent stake in a new entity. And they get the commercial rights, merchandising, and ticketing. It, the All Blacks is a is a monetizable. But, but even even that. So, so, so hang on, hang on, we're, hang on, hang on, everybody. We're not doing too badly here. We're only selling off twelve and a half percent. We're keeping eighty-seven point five percent of what made us great. Even that, trying to sell that part of it, doesn't wash with me, Hutchie. But it's not. It's not a controlling interest in the team. It's a, it's a, they're a funding partner. It's a, it's 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 allowing someone in on the brand that's yours. Oh, Damo, wake up and look out the window. It's happened in every... This every... is the All Blacks, Hutchie. This is the All Blacks, Hutchie. The, 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 the sweep, the sheds mentality that every single AFL club has supposedly embraced. And... But that doesn't that doesn't change with a, with a, uh, a financial backer. Well, what, what, under your model, it, the game should be amateur then. No. Not the game to go back to being amateur. Do you say All Blacks should be... You're saying that the coach shouldn't be paid a market rate, the players shouldn't be paid their commercial actually, worth. Everyone gets paid, and, and, and thankfully they do. I mean, for too long, they, they didn't get paid what they were, not, they're not, were worth. They're not donations. They're not, they're no, but, not, no, but they're selling the brand. They're not, they're not selling the people playing the sport. They're selling the brand. They're selling a stake in the brand in order to better monetize it, in order to attribute more value to local rugby in New Zealand. It'll be reinvested in the sport. It's not people putting it in their pocket going, oh, that was fun. Well, and, and, and nor- you'd like to think it would be reinvested into the, the sport. But the moment you set up a company to sell off the entity that, that once was everybody's, someone's making a cut, Hutchie. It's, it's a 12.5%. And, and you've got stake. no control over what that other company does. If they've got that 12.5%, I'd, they can do it with it whatever they know, want. That's, that's, that is so naive. It's not funny. 12.5% is... is barely a seat at the table in a deal like this, albeit from a day-to-day operational point of view, they take on the commercial interests, merchandising and ticketing. External businesses do this every day, all day in sport around the world. External businesses, but but this is use of all black name, Hachi. The all blacks. I, I can't believe we're in this conversation. It's incredibly, I think it's incredibly naive to think these type of deals don't go on all around the world. Where it changes is when and, and we've seen, like you look at Australia, for instance, Larry Kesselman way ahead of his time in buying the NBL. The alternative, though, to Larry, Larry did it really out of uh, hard as much as strategic investment at the time because the alternative was the NBL dying. And he was able to reinvent and save uh, the NBL. Uh, one, of our, one of our reasons for investing is we believe in the long-term worth of the sport and its future and the way it's progressing in the Melbourne United deal. Silver Lake are going to do these type of deals. There's many companies like them all around the world. The only time it really changes the dynamic of sport is what we saw in Europe. When is mass, this the Super League you're referring to? Yeah, when mass teams are owned on bulk by incredibly wealthy people, then it does become about money, doesn't it? But in New Zealand's instance, and I, I know that the deal's not rubber stamped, I don't think it is anyway. I don't um, believe it is as we yep. speak. I think it's, it's taken all the right procedural steps to get it to the point where it can be, but I think to your point, it hasn't yet been signed. 
It's twelve and a half percent for three hundred and seventy-eight point five million. So it would, you know, it, it's it's a far cry from the deal we've seen in, in Europe. It doesn't really give them um, any type of strategic decision making on the future of the All Blacks. So the All Blacks couldn't just get up and start, you know, playing overseas the whole time, for instance, under this model. So I, I'm, I, I think it works. Hachi, sports this... are going to have to get their head around it, though, Damo. Like <laughs> equity in sports going to be the thing. It already is the thing. I, I get equity in sport, Hutchie, but equity in the icon that is the All Blacks. I, I, I'm sorry, I've, you've exposed me to the business side of, of everything in the last, I don't know, what is it, 10 to 15 years, but so I, I, I still have an issue with this story we've just discussed. But so under your model, well, everyone else could do it, but the All Blacks can't because of the, what they stand for. In you can still sell, a, you, you can sell around what the All Blacks do, but don't sell the All Blacks. They're selling part of the All Blacks name, Hutchie. This is what this deal is about. It's not It's not selling or having access to the players at any given point in time who represent the country. It's the actual All Blacks imagery and, and All Blacks name. Oh, that, yeah. That's the bit I don't get. And, yeah, and, we- and that, that's the bit that does carry across hemispheres, doesn't it? I mean, as you know, in the, in the sports marketplaces around the world, and, and they're quite big in the States, the All Blacks, aren't they? They've actually got some cut through to, to some degree that a, you know, yeah, that a rugby no, union a, team would not normally have got. They're, historically. A, global, they're yeah. a global brand. We've seen the NBA teams now open up to allow our minor equity owners in who are financial um, businesses. So I haven't read the exact ruling, but I've been meeting to for a couple of weeks there. I think it's up to it's up to 15% now you're allowed to buy of an NBA team for the first time as a kind of financial investor. So that'll that'll get interesting. Hachi, we, we, we've sometimes spoken about pressure on, on journalists at certain ages and stages of, of careers and the, the weight that comes down the line of a, an organisation. Look, some of those conversations have been about News Limited. The one we're about to have is about News Limited. I don't want to necessarily make this a conversation about News Limited, though. But the, the example in question uh, this week, um, this story was written in the New York Times, headline, New York Post reporter who wrote false Kamala Harris story resigns. The front page article in the Murdoch tabloid claimed that copies of a children's book by the vice president were given to migrant children as part of a, quote, welcome kit. The I'm going to paraphrase a longer and more detailed story here, here Hachi. The, the author of that initial story um, has since said that uh, she was forced to write a story a certain way that included falsities. Uh, has since resigned as a result of it and and publicly spoken about what had happened in it. It's a pretty largely publicised or very largely publicised example of uh, what we sometimes talk about here, Hachi, on a uh, on, on a more of a uh, micro scale. So, what's your point? Your point is that the, the my point is, is that, that it happens. My point is that it does happen. It, it absolutely it does happen and. Whatever you think of the of the uh, the New York Post, it's still a, a very big newspaper. And, and if, if if people at that paper are forcing, compelling, whatever word you want to use here, certain journalists to to put into copy content that they're not comfortable with, at least at the outset, it's a real worry when it gets exposed. Well, yeah, that is, that may be true. But to ask the question in return, have you ever? I mean, it's probably different these days at the AFL.com because you've got your own podcast, AFL Daily, and you're a bit of a big deal in there and all of those type of things. And there's probably not the same level of sub-editors that you've dealt with at newspapers. But back in your newspaper times, I would, I would hazard a guess it was very rare that you put your name on a story that you read the next day in the paper and it was exactly as you wrote it. 
you're you're often influenced by some editors and they push content into your stories that you may not have written. I understand and- what you're saying, but the general theme and premise of said article, even as a young reporter, I I, I don't recall it ever being changed, as in the the tone of the article being but a changed. A chief of staff would give you stories to write from time to time. Yeah, and, what, and this one you're right. They, they they might have been aggressively in inverted commas sold um, to to a degree that you may not have been comfortable with, but it doesn't necessarily change the. The content oh, of it. I'd, this I'd this is a further. factual inaccuracy that, which suited a certain narrative. Yeah, is what we're referring probably, to here. I'm probably taking the, the story in a different angle than what, you, what you're asking me. But I, I, I would reckon that chief of staff give out news stories to reporters, often for a strategic reason of the business that the reporter doesn't know at the time. Damo, come here. I've got a story. I reckon it'd be an interesting one for you to follow up. But so about this, and I reckon this would be good for you to look into. And you should ask this question, and you wouldn't realise you're part of the overall business agenda sometimes. When you're younger, you don't. When you're young, you yeah. know. But th- th- that's not a play instance, here. That's not a play yeah. here. This person, I believe, is quite experienced. Um, ended up getting caught up in, in, in what it was she was asked to do. Uh, obviously went along with it to a point. But then, conscience-wise, Hachi couldn't then live with what had happened. And I've got to respect that part of it. Have they responded to the allegation? Uh, the, post? the Post later issued brief corrections, but only after this is this is in the same New York Times article. But only after its falsehoods had been amplified at face value by leading Republican lawmakers and cable news stars. Have they responded, however, to this story? Which, by the way, you're taking from the New York Times, so they are in some degree a competitor, right, of the New York, the New York Post. Well, of course they are. Yeah, that's that's yep. that's, that's how most stories end up uh, getting exposed, Hutchie. Yep. Yeah. So just but I don't, I, don't, I don't entirely know what your point is here, Hutchie. This, is, this has happened. I mean, yeah, but the New York Times say it's happened. Have the New York Post been able to respond to this particular New York Times story to clarify whether they accept the version of events the Times are telling us? Well, this, the Post reporter who wrote the original article said she had resigned from the paper because of, and this is a quote, an incorrect story I was ordered to write, Descri- yes. describing the episode as, quote, my breaking point. But have the Post conceded that they, yes, did indeed order it? Or oh, so, so you're going to rely on the did they concede line here, Hutchie? What are you, are you trying to defend the Post here? Oh, I believe in two sides of a story. You're, pre- you're presenting one to our audience here today. Uh, the, the Post reporter has resigned, Hutchie, on the back of what happened. Yeah, but ha- I mean, let me run, let me run the counter-argument. The Post reporter... Uh, fell out with the paper, and so that was the convenient reason to, to go. Like, there's a Probably million scenarios. She's very defensive of some pretty questionable activity. I just asked a question. What's the other side saying? You said, I have I don't know. I said, that's okay. Well, I, just, I was curious. I didn't think I was going to raise this topic to go down this path, but if you want, I'll, I'll bring you an update next week um, on, on what the post has said about this. If you're looking for a moral of the story, let's get to that. The moral of the story is, if you feel uncomfortable about writing something on your employer's behalf, you can always choose to go. And, and particularly if it's inaccurate, right? That's that's mm. integrity. Uh, unfortunately, I would su- suspect there's a bit of it, a bit too much of it goes on, Damo. Hachi, do you still think the Tokyo Olympic Games will be going on? You've been a big advocate this, of this for a, a number of reasons and, and all the positivity that would uh, engender. But as we get closer, are you sure it's going to happen? Uh, yeah, I think it will, for sure. Don't you? Let me get the cynics kicked in. Watchy, last time I checked, there's a fairly large country in the world that Australians aren't allowed to return from. Um, I'm obviously referring to India. I realise the games are in Tokyo. 
the the games in Tokyo though, Hachi, are not going to be seamless. And yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure right now that anywhere away from one's own country, particularly if you're an Australian, is is going to be a a welcoming place for you in the in the coming weeks or months. I can only yeah, imagine I, the stress attached to the decision to to I, go. I, 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 I mean, and people are allowed to have that fear, Hutchie, and, and I don't think you should criticise them for maybe having a conservative outlook on it. I mean, there are people who are Australians, Hutchie, who aren't allowed back in their own country right now. Yeah. No, I don't begrudge anyone who, who doesn't or can't go. We've already seen those stories emerge with the water polo players. Uh, and equally, it's going to be a different type of Olympics from a competition point of view. But uh, you, can't, you can't tell me we won't find a way to get these Olympics away. If, if IPL is still going on in India, surely we can get an Olympics away in the right bubble circumstances in see, Japan. See, I, see, I reckon that's that, that's another 10 levels above the IPL. I mean, we're, we're talking about every nation in the world being invited. Yeah, but I mean, the, the IPL, let's face it, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a cricket competition and, and as we know, there's about 10 nations who play cricket and some of them not that well. It's a big quarantine job, but I, I firmly believe it, it'll happen. Just on India, by the way, I know everyone's got an opinion on this and so it was probably you know, far beat for us to add to the yes and no, but I'll give you mine anyway. What are we doing banning India? Like, how how unthinkable is it that we're blocking, for a period of time at least, Australians getting home? Like, how little do we think of our own quarantine system where we can't support our own national identities? And how disrespectful it is to our Indian friends who are such a uh, important part of the growing Australian population, have been wonderful uh, friends of our country. Oh, I can't believe it. Like I can't either. Surely, Damon. You normally don't venture into this political space, Hutchie. I, I well, sometimes do, yeah, I, without I taking a side of the political fence. But I found myself getting a bit worked up about reading on the weekend. Like I, I am too. Like I mean, well, every, everyone's got to do fourteen days quarantine, no matter what happens. I, I can understand, you know, a, a variance of the quarantine. It's got to be more remote, or it's got to be twenty-one days, or you know, you got to put some extra measures in place. I, I get the need to address the specific problem. I just can't believe that we've been as insensitive hmm. as to block a nation from entering ours, and particularly one that's such a great friend of our country and, and it's people who are so wonderful to yeah. our and, and then And then to not just block, but but to to almost... Threaten jail terms. Yeah, th- threaten jail terms, I mean, fines. Who, who, was the, who was the bright spark in the government that actually came up with that idea as an optic? Like, Well, it's under the portfolio of, of Hunt, isn't it? Well, like, how how, um, how inflammatory it was to do that. Like, uh, But, but yeah, actually, it's not as if they're revisiting it. They've, they've spoken about it since. They're, they're, they're getting off on, on the ban, and they're actually acting, trying to act as though it's, it's great leadership, that we're, we're doing this as a nation. I mean, it's, it's sort, a disgrace. Australian, sort, Australians are not allowed back into their own country. And actually, the key word here is Australians. They may be in India at the moment, but they are Australians. And then, of course, they, uh, uh, part of it clearly was embarrassed, right? Part of it was the Doha two crickets getting home, and no one, you know, no one actually closing that loophole. And uh, I, I reckon it was as much looking looking silly as it was. They, they, they've overreacted to um, the inadequacy of their own st- structures, and 
I mean, in defence of them a little bit, there's a lot going on at the one time in in, in COVID. You've got to make quick decisions. Yeah. It's not going to be perfect. But what I also don't like too, Hutch, just to take this conversation maybe to the, the a deeper layer, um, the, the comment by the, the Prime Minister about the, these cricketers will get no special dispensation when we refer to the cricket side of what's going on here, um, because their, their jobs, they were not essential effectively. I mean, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but, but in the context of a cricketer's life, a, a contract of that magnitude could easily be legally argued that it is essential for that person to go and take that contract because obviously there was a lot of contracts that, that weren't able to be achieved last year because of COVID. The runway for the cricketers, as you know, gets shorter every year. They've got a, a lifespan that uh, doesn't last all that long. And I, I, I really feel for them having made the decision to go over there themselves and abided by our governments, um, the Indian government's protocols around the hygiene, around everything. And then on the back of there being an inability to properly control people coming into this country by this this country, um, they've just slapped a ban on on Australians coming Don't back. I, it's just it just it's, it defies belief. I grew up in a country that was pitched to me as multicultural, progressive, and for yeah. everybody in when, in on our land. And then when we want to go and travel, go with our blessing, develop yourself, yeah. live the world, fly the flag for us. And I'm, you know, I'm questioning whether both things are true. You know, but, like, but don't don't forget though, Hutchie, that this is also politicians out of control here because we, we had a premier down here who, who divided this not just state but this city by way of a postcode arrangement, as, as you recall. I, I mean, it's just it's basically just an extension of that control freak element that most politicians seem to have, and for the first time in their lives, have been given because of the uh, uncertainty and and insecurity around around COVID. We've learned a lot during COVID. We've learned that the states have got more power than we thought and the federal government have got less. We've learned that point one. We've learned that we are going to be uh, treated based upon where we live much more than we ever thought. Yep. And we've learned that if we happen to get stuck overseas in a country that's in problems, well, then unfortunately we're going to be a stat in the whole thing. Our government won't allow us back in. Not only will they not help us get back in, they actually won't allow us to get they, back in. They should be doing moving heaven and earth to get Australians back. Of course they like, should. I can't, I can't believe that they... Yeah, I understand the political risk of the outbreaks, but it's not—it's inhumane what they're doing. Hey, speaking of which, we got a lot of criticism last week. In fairness, did we? Um, yep, I can't remove Normal backlash week? off Twitter like it. Oh, really? We're not discussing the Super League situation <laughs> in European football. Yep. Uh, I want to be honest with the audience and say it was your decision. You just you said <laughs> we're not to talk about it. It's uh, seven days old. Everyone's moved on. <laughs> Um, and I don't like the sport anyway. I said, I love the sport. I'd like to do a bit of time on the business side of it. You said, no, it's old and no one will notice. So um, just to clarify for the audience, it was Damo's decision. Um, if you need to blame anyone, there's no I in team, but there is one in Damien. Blame Damien. Um, it was him. Uh, and uh, I'll now, given the audience have agreed with me, yeah. give you my views on the Super League, right. as, I lo- as I wanted to do last week. Uh, just just um, Sandra Sally with the late news here. Go for it, Hutchie. What, what is so, your take? It's two weeks old. So here it is. The, you talk about the, the, sale of a, the sale of a story. Yep. That was the most poorly executed announcement <laughs> I've ever seen in yep. global sport. How you can whack out a press release going, hey, guess what, everyone? We're off to a new rich league. <laughs> Who, who sat in a room on a conference call or on a Zoom call and, and said, not only are we going to do this, but here's, we'll just put out a release and everyone will go, well done, guys. Like, <laughs> th- th- talk about misreading the room. Yep. How any of those global beasts who are such customer-centric business, you think about their, their metrics, right? They've got 
they know and they've got the personalised strategy for every fan. They would know their fans back to front, their behaviours, what they buy, when they buy, how they, how many times they open an EDM, how many times they download a podcast. They've got such um, tech yeah. around their fan bases. And they they would be retargeting those fans when they travel to sell them products. That's how that yeah. you know advanced they'd be. And yet they miss what a computer can't teach you. Yeah. Well that they, they miss they miss empathy. Common sense. Yes. And that if they had walked into one pub in a town they trade in rather than sit there on a Zoom call. Yeah. I'll bet many pubs are shut at the moment. And they'd sit outside at one venue and ask one person, How do you reckon this will go over? Hmm. The average everyday fan would have said the same thing. Um and that is, you can't sell this. No one's going to buy this. It was poor. And the fact that so many on scale did it made you wonder about who's sitting in those rooms having those conversations. And and too, Hutchie, the, the journalism around it was extraordinary. I, I actually I wish I did know the name of the journalist who, who broke the story, but clearly yep. breaking it in, in a time frame that was of not the control of the people orchestrating the, the attempted uh, project, clearly adversely impacted on it. They, they had no control of the initial narrative around it. And, and look, even if they had, I can't imagine it of, of being received any differently to how it was. But that when you don't have the initial narrative control, you've got nothing either. Yeah, and there's, there's also, we talk about the, we've talked about for years about the emergence of opinionists on this show. Yep. And uh, the fact that that term hasn't caught on anywhere is fine by me because it's ours. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the opinionists have become a really big thing in news stories. If you have an opinion that cuts through, you can really impact how other people feel. Often, an opinionist can make people feel the way they feel by the way they tell their story. Sometimes they can make sense of your emotions before you've made it yourself. And there was a moment in this story where an opinionist, or as he might be known, the mood of the room guy, summed it up best, and that was Gary Neville. I don't reckon there's oh, been yeah. a report from a, a opinionist uh, at a time that better spoke to how the public felt than his three-minute rant on TV. Yep. It was electrically delivered. People were empowered by what he said to want to join him in his venom. Yep. And I think he helped you understand how you were feeling before you even entirely knew whether how you felt was the right way to be feeling. Hmm. He, he, the mood of the room was best read by Gary Neville. And if, you, and if the mood of the room had been read by his old footy club the same way as he had, that had been trying to sell this a lot differently because it, it was a hard sell. It, nearly, nearly an impossible, but not entirely impossible sell. The rollout of it was as flawed as the idea, yep. I think. Yep. There's, a, there's another scenario where you can coach over a year people to suggest to you that go, you go and do this, I think. It was just arrogance to roll it out the way they did. Yeah, it was. And, uh, yeah, we probably should have spoken about it last week, Hutchie, but... Do, um, do you think there's anyone in Australia who reads the mood of the room in sport uh, regularly, like, say, uh, Gary Neville did on this occasion? Can you think of an opinion as to... I'm trying to think of... Because um, what we see is we get people that are fixed in their views... Yeah. You get Andrew Bolt, you know how he's going to react to something, and yeah. then you get Rita Panahin, you know how she's going to react to something, and then you get, you know, um, you know, so on and so on. There's a lot of great opinionists in Australia, or you know, high-profile opinionists, but you generally know how they feel, mm. and they don't really care how anyone else feels. I reckon Gary Neville just felt the way the country felt. Mm. 
Do you know of anyone who can who taps into it well in them? In, in the 15 seconds since you first posed it, I'm trying to think, Hutchie, and I, I, look, no one's coming to I mind, but I haven't it, thought about it. It's a small sector, but I think Robert Craddock in cricket does a pretty good job. Robert like he, Craddock would be as good an example as there is. Yep. Yeah, he... Yep. he he has that yeah, in pub, fact, I pub, wish I had thought of him, actually, because he he's the pub the sniff test. Yep. No, does it pass the pub sniff test? Yep. He, and, he, and, he, he's, and his way of phrasing his own thoughts, too, is, is also part of what you're referring to there, too. And, and, and no one talks to the, I think, the common person better than, than Crash when, when it yeah. comes to expressing opinion. I think Mike Sheen, in his, in his day in AFL, had a very good feel for how the, how the public felt about things and what was right and wrong. Hmm. Yeah, crushes the, the right example there. Hutchie, let's uh, head now to the question of the week. On the sounding board, it's our question of the week for DrinkWise. If you're choosing to drink, choose to DrinkWise. Comes from Simon Fenton on email this week. With Channel 7 having to pay a contestant damages due to psychological injuries suffered on a reality TV show, does this change the way TV producers present contestants to the public and even spell the end of some reality shows? There's a an article attached to that question, Hachi, under the headline, Seven ordered to pay former MKR contestant $425 per week compensation for, quote, psychological injury. It's a good question that Simon poses here as the question of the week for Drinkwise. Uh, we feel for the person involved, so let's put that on the table yeah. and, and then you know park that to the left and talk more philosophically about the issue. To the issue, yeah. Yep. Uh, I would think this happens more than is exposed in print. Really? Often uh, settled privately. Uh, I'm guessing. I don't have any inside knowledge of that. Um, it's been 20 years since I made a reality show. But what what I do know is that the cost of people appearing is really low because you're uh, you're not paying you know like talent rates per se. You're to, selling exposure to that person. Yeah, aren't you? you, you you're offering them a product themselves. So uh, a there would be probably I guess by stealth less experienced in that situation. Yep. B, what you're getting is unknown a bit more to you because you don't know, haven't known the person for many years, and not a paid performer. And C, uh, it's you know a twenty-two thousand dollars payout would be you know, nothing to a network. So it's not that's it's, a year. It, that's a year. It's twenty-two thousand dollars a year in, in ongoing compensation here. I mean that, that adds yeah. up, actually. So I, no, yeah, but if if and I, again, I'm removing the person, but the. Um, you would, if that was a paid actor on that show, they'd be paying much more than twenty-two thousand dollars for that role. So that even time. Yeah. even pay, even settling a, a sad situation, yeah, ends up cheaper than the cost of a. You what, know, so where do you though? Where, where do you where do you factor in, and, and what weight do you give the, the, the buyer beware component to to this arrangement? I mean, the, the buyer beware component obviously comes from the the inverted commas the talent, um, and again, removing names and specifics out of this conversation. But someone appearing on a reality TV show, they know what's going to happen. They know that words um, are going to be manipulated. They they know that actions are going to be deliberately misportrayed. They know that even false storylines are going to be injected into. The drama. Um, you know that. Surely you know yeah, that. I mean, Isn't there a clause that, again, I'm not commenting on the specifics of this MKR situation here, but surely there's an element of that at some stage. I think the reality shows have tried over the years to change the tone of their shows. Like 15 years ago, it was anger or, you know, uh, almost abuse that was the product, right? You think back to Dicko judging people and saying, that's no good. And you think to, you know, um, the judges all being hard-headed on, you know, um, performance shows hmm. and, and now it's much softer yep 
as it needs to be. Times have changed. You can't have a black hat, so per, quote unquote, as the uh, you know the type of expert. Um, you know, which is um, you, you can't have a negative judge like Dicko in modern times on a show. Um, so yeah, I think they've done some work towards addressing the tone of these shows. But that said, they're not held to the same social account as everything else. So things that happen on maths, you wouldn't put up with on a normal... No. ...in everyday life, would you? It's no. Not, there were some borderline storylines in that. Yeah. yeah. It's, you know, it's, exploiti- it's exploitive in the eyes of some. Yep. So, yeah, I think we're going to see things change. But I don't think it's the end of reality. Reality just has to change with society's changes. Mm. Well, we're not prepared to see someone bullied, intimidated, or abused on television. No, we that, that would be uncomfortable, and it probably was yeah. back then when it was tolerated. But, but fifteen it would years ago, though, was, I reckon it was everywhere in reality telly. It was wrong. Yeah. Hey, we normally wait for question time on these things, Damo, but James Warren via Twitter, and you can, of course, get the, the question time a little bit later on in the week. He asked this. It was up your wheelhouse. Is there a chance we can get Damien Barrett to rock up to the next dog's presser and ask about Eugle Hagen? Got the potential to tip Bevo right over and really test his restraint. <laughs> now, before we get into that, this is how Bevo reacted to Ronnie Lerner's question on the weekend. Did you hear my press conference the other day? <laughs> no, I didn't. Well, can you guys just listen to press conferences so you don't keep asking the same questions? Because I've, I've, I've answered this question. I know it seems like I'm getting defensive, but when you answer the same question every time I'm in a room with you guys, I mean, you've got, you got, you got to imagine that it, it gets frustrating because you guys don't do your research. You don't, you don't look at what's happening. I mean, and you end up, everyone's tapping the same brush because you... You answer a question that is rhetorical. You should know the answer to. <laughs> right now, Damo, this is right in your wheelhouse as the resident uh, Bevo. Well, I mean, he dislikes you more than anyone put together. Um, so how, that, that may be true. How do you think he handled that situation? I, I thought Ronnie Lerner did a pretty good job of that, Hussey. I, I, again, arguably, he could have come back at, at Luke at, at one stage of that rant, which it became. Um, but ultimately, I think the question was a valid one about the, the, the high draft pick that they had to use to get the, the greatest talent in last year's draft. Jamara Hagen hasn't played a game yet. There's reasons for that. Um, the way they're, they're working him and holding him back, I think that's all very admirable. But I think the question is, is a valid one. And I mean, Luke himself there used the word defensive. And he was. He was way too defensive in, in a way that he, he didn't like being and, and normally wouldn't be. But it's no coincidence that his attitude on that question blew up on the back of uh, the first time he'd experienced a loss this season too, I think, Hutchie. Yeah, I think if, you, if you're going to take a number one, a couple of things here. If you're going to take a number one draft pick, you have to accept that there's a tax on that. The tax is being asked about how that player yep. is going for 10 years. Yeah, Melbourne went through it with Jack Watts. You're going to be asked about Jamari Eagle Hagen and his return on the investment for 10 years. So The ROI. Accept that. The second thing is, it's a little bit of naivety on the subject's behalf of this case, Bevo, the journalist is not actually asking the question. The journalist isn't even that, that interested in the answer. They just want a quote or a grab hmm. for their story. They want the coach saying it, not you. And and the context to it had changed too, Hutchie. Let's let's also factor that in. I mean, he, Beveridge, Luke Beveridge referred to my press conference during the week. Did you not hear what I said? Well, that's all well and good, but that's three, four days old by the time he then is asked again. And they've also had their first loss of the season within that time frame. So the, the context to what he said during the week doesn't Matter. Who cares what he said during the week and where he said it? Like, what, what does he expect that you're going to go sit there and run, run your eye over the tape before you go out to the press? Oh, hang on, before I go and watch tonight's game, I better rewatch the coach's press conferences during the week. <laughs> Give me a spell. I've seen, I've been in that situation 
a little bit closer than Ronnie was, Hutchie. It can turn ugly from that moment. Yep. No, I thought uh, he overreacted, Luke. But anyway, it's all part of the grist for the bill. Yep. Maybe he was trying to get a reaction like that. Maybe he was trying to goad him into uh, reacting. All right, Hutchie, we bounced around a few topics there today on uh, episode 14 of Series 6 of Have you ever been to Auckland before, Damo? I have been to Auckland before, Hutchie. Beautiful city. Beautiful city. Yeah. It's a it's magnificent a, harbour. It's, it's a gorgeous place, isn't it? Yes. On the harbour? Yes. Yep. So, um, here back for a couple the, of days. Uh, would have been back in the... I think early 90s, Hutchie, to mid-90s. Went up to the Bay of Islands there too on the back end of that little trip. Oh, did you? Yeah. Yep. Didn't the Victorian Sheffield Shield team ever came here for a pre-season no. trip or something? I was, actually, could... I was actually there for a um, – it was it was New Zealand Cup, which was in Christchurch, and then we went up to Auckland after that, the New Zealand yeah. Cup being harness racing. We, we, we think we'll uh, be able to have a lot of fun here with SENZ, which when we roll out – Brendan McCullum and Ian Smith and co into our format, which hits 30 stations in the back half of this year. Really looking forward to getting it going and being part of the He's New Zealand. one of my favourite all-time sports people, Baz McCullum. All-time. We, cracking guy and uh, really invested in what we're doing here and uh, looking forward to working with him. And uh, watch this space on that. But that, this has been the sounding board demo for Drinkwise. And if you're choosing to hoodwink the audience by not talking about the Super League when they ask for it, like <laughs> you did last week, make sure you drink wise. Thanks for listening to the Sounding Board Podcast with Hutchie and Damo. Tune in for questions tomorrow and to send a question to the boys, email thesoundingboard at sen.com.au, follow the show on Twitter at Sounding Board EP and like the Facebook page. It's all thanks to Drinkwise. If you're choosing to have a drink, choose to Drinkwise. Drinkwise.